Of course, everybody wants to make money. Of course, everybody wants to be financially set and independent. But that can't be at the core of what drives you. That's a very unhappy lifestyle because you're chasing this destination and your definition of that destination changes. What does well-off mean? And what does being comfortable mean? And the answer is it's a mental state. And that mental state gets shaped by your experiences, how you grew up, the leaders that you worked with, the people that you engage with. And it just fuels you then to say, now what can I do that some of the risk got removed? Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Did you see the camera crew waiting for you on the way in? No, that's for me. What? Why do I need a camera? I thought we we're doing voice only. There was a camera crew out there. The news station was out there. Did you see the news station? I don't think that was for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw the news stations. I guess it was newsworthy, but Figma got acquired this morning. I saw morning. that. My phone has been on fire all day. That was a big acquisition. Big. In fact, it's the largest private acquisition in technology Ever. history. I know. I know. Unbelievable, right? Bold move, but I, you know. They what do had- you make of it? They had to do something bold. They've been stagnating and, you know, the cash cows have been slowing down a little bit. The goal is to be a trillion dollar business. Market cap, how are you going to get there? Not with organic growth. You got to make acquisitions at that size. Yeah, I agree. And it is encouraging. Obviously for us, we did it pretty early. It's a great win. What I'm encouraged by is all this talk about the market and where we are, there's a pretty hefty valuation on the multiples of the revenue that they were doing. It was a strategic though. Think about it. I think what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of companies that thought they were the real deal because money was free. When money is free, you get to spend a lot and you get to buy growth at any cost. That works for a little bit, but you got to build a sustainable business and you got to build it in a gigantic TAM and you have to define that TAM of the overall market. A lot of businesses, I've never seen this many unicorns in my life, heard of it. Paper unicorns. We can call them whatever. I call them unicorns. But brilliant ideas, and I actually think it built bad habits. But then you got companies who have legitimate businesses in a massive TAM, and most importantly, a TAM that's evolving, which means there's upside on top of that. When you're looking at those, and you look at companies that say... I can take this, spread it across my entire domain, footprint, empire, whatever you want to call it, right? What's that worth? It isn't just a product. It's about taking it into my entire universe. You just bundle it. That's right. Take the Microsoft playbook, just bundle it up. That's right. The attach rates on those. And then what adjacent markets does that give you access to? What adjacent potential additional acquisitions does that give you access to as a transitionary bridge? And for the Figma team, it's distribution. It's free distribution. Yes, it is. It is a customer base in Adobe that has way more feet on the street. Yes, it is. That they can go help sell. Yes, it is. That's what an acquisition is supposed to do, if you think about it. Strategic relevance, 
ability to take whatever it is you buy, push it out into your base, into your network, into your distribution channels. If you can do that, and then again, it gives you access to adjacent and or bridges you into additional, then what's that worth? When you were at AppDynamics, did the acquisition at Cisco happen while you were there? Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Um, 3.2? 3.7. And it was the largest acquisition at that time. I don't know if you remember, but the market was pretty stale. It was not very favorable. What year was this? This was 2017. Mm-hmm. And you were the CRO? Correct. Okay. So let me ask you this. So you've seen this before. That changed your life. That changed your team's life. It that did. changed a lot of people in the company's life. I'm super curious. On today, how are you getting the team fired up? You have work to do. Yeah. But it's no one's working. Let's be honest. No one's working. What do you mean by that? If I'm a betting man and I go into the Figma office today, do I think that like they're all- Not today. Today. I Not mean to- today. Okay. You're yeah. talking about today. I'm talking about the yeah. day of. What was it like? I'll tell you a story because ours was a little unique where we were about to IPO. Everybody was traveling into New York on a Sunday for an IPO. I think it was a Thursday. Saturday morning, I'm in this gymnastics building run by like ex-Olympic Russians. And this thing is hardcore. They have it set up where parents can come in, get this little waiting area. Nobody's allowed to speak. You can't make noises. You can't wave at your kids. You can't distract them. If you do it, they'll ask you to leave because it's all about gymnastics. So it's that. And I'm sitting there, took my daughter, it's raining outside, and this is Saturday, and I'm about to travel to New York on Sunday. I'm sitting there, everybody's enthusiastic, right? Crowds are coming in. We have parties set for New York to celebrate. The impending IPO. The impending IPO. And Saturday morning, and my phone's blown up, and it's my CEO, David Wadwani, at that time. And he's calling me, I'm like, it's Saturday morning, can't be that urgent. And he's calling me, and calling me, and calling me. I step outside, you know, following the rules. So my daughter has a ride home. And I take the call in the rain. I'm like, why are you calling me right now? He said, have you seen the NDA? I said, what NDA? And he goes, sign the NDA right now and call me back. So I go on, I sign the NDA, call him back. And he says, listen, we're in due diligence discussions with Cisco for an acquisition. So shock sets in. You go, what do you mean acquisition? We're IPOing. So that entire weekend, all we did, I mean, it was crazy. The amount of work that was done, nobody knew. You had no idea, honestly. Until I signed that NDA. You had no clue. No clue. Really? No clue. As the CRO? No clue. Because they approached us on Friday. The day before. I mean, this came together. And the IPO was supposed to happen on? Thursday. The following Thursday. That's correct. So six days after that. That's correct. Okay. So a little inside here. Cisco had been our customer at AppDynamics. So they had been using our software, beating it up, testing it as a customer. So by the time we sat down with them on Friday, the due diligence was no longer product because that's, that's what usually takes the time. The due diligence was the operating model and everything else. So everybody's traveling in on Sunday. So we have dozens of people in New York already. And you know I traveled in Sunday night as well. And then Monday we announced it. So let me tell you what happens and what to your question earlier, Give it to the me. day off. First comes shock because... You don't want to be part of a larger entity. You have this belief, this feeling, we're building something groundbreaking, something unique. We're driving a change that's going to not just change our lives, the industry. I mean, you have all these fantastic dreams, but it's a business in the end. There was shock. There was confusion. Definitely, it wasn't one day. It was probably a week of no work. 
some people excited because it was a good outcome and some people not excited because they want to stay independent. They want to be part of, of a large, Keep large building. entity. So it was a week of nothing. Nothing. For everybody. We all just stayed in New York, went to dinner, contemplated, talked about it. And then we had this ambition to change Cisco. And you can't change a big entity. It's impossible. No. What a great story. So let me ask you, obviously there was projections on the dollar amount that AppD was going to go public at. Yep. What were those numbers? The projections based on the road showing up, share what I can. Yeah, is, like approximately. We were thinking two to two and a half, but we were oversubscribed. Yeah. So that means we would have popped. Yeah. But the big boom in the market didn't happen until about six to 12 months after our acquisition. Right. So is it going to be two to two and a half oversubscribed? Is that exciting? Not? What does that mean? You're going to pop a dollar, two, ten? Yeah. You don't know. But you take a Cisco and it was a strong offer. It was, again, the largest at the time. It was financially a no-brainer. Yeah. And you don't have to answer this. Yeah. In your heart of hearts, how did you really feel? I wish we wouldn't have sold. Do you really mean that? hundred percent. We had something unique. It took us a while to get there, but it was unique. It was special. It was a really strong leadership team and strong executive team. And our trajectory was top notch. We were just at that cusp of making the next leap and all of the engines were in place to do it. Can I ask you follow-up questions yeah. to this? Because it's very timely today. You don't come from much money. Yep. You're not a made man when you came to America. Quite the opposite. All of a sudden, you woke up and you knew you were made and your kids were made. Probably generations. It was done. And did it feel as good as you thought it would? Could you really appreciate that? No. It was never about that for you, was it? I hate to say this. It didn't feel real. Like when I get my paycheck or anything deposited into my account for whatever is not needed for bills. I have the habit and I've had it forever. Everything else that I put aside, I put aside right away. So I'm staring at my bank account with a low balance. And that's been my habit throughout my life. I haven't changed it. Listen, you have enthusiasm, you have excitement, but you can't comprehend the financials. And because you can't comprehend it, of course, you're thrilled. Of course, you realize that this is a life-changing event. And of course, you take a deep breath, but it fundamentally did not change a thing. Just didn't. I've had so many people on that have had life-changing events like this. I had the Zoom Info founder on Henry Schock yeah, yeah. or Freddie from Okta. And they both told me pretty much the same story, which was Henry sold his 50% of his company, made $100 million. Like he was probably in his 30s, low 30s. Yep. And... He sent a picture to the investors that next day flying in the middle seat of coach. And he's like, this is what being a multimillionaire looks like. Yeah. And then Freddie from Okta, they went public. And then he woke up Monday. He's on a call with Europe on a yep. sales call. And he's like, wait a second. My day to day is the exact same. Listen, it's your background and it's your mentality. And is that why you say it's like kind of surreal? Like you don't really believe it? Because like your world doesn't just change all of a sudden. Here's what I'll tell you. If that was your goal and your ambition, of course, everybody wants to make money. Of course, everybody wants to be financially set and independent, but that can't be at the core of what drives you. That's a very unhappy lifestyle because you're chasing this destination and your definition of that destination changes. What does well-off mean? And what does being comfortable mean? And the answer is it's a mental state. And that mental state gets shaped by your experiences, how you grew up, 
the leaders that you worked with, the people that you engage with, and it just fuels you then to say, now what can I do that some of the risk got removed? Because we have that risk hanging over your head of financial independence, you have to be somewhat cautious in some decisions. But my mind just never worked that way. It's the common trope where if you focus on making money, you generally won't make money. But if you focus on building value, then generally the money kind of follows that's that. That's correct. Maybe that's a very Silicon Valley thing, but I think it holds true. It does. I firmly believe it. Can I revisit the bank account comment you make? Yeah. So your checking account has basically been the same forever. Listen, I just, what my expenses are. It just stays there. It stays there. Is that because you want a reminder? Like, wh- why do you do that? Because it's a reminder of making sure that you realize there is something you still got to do to continue to provide, to continue to earn your way forward. Because it's hard to define the intellectual growth progress or whatever else. But you're going, I got to pay the bills. Since I came to the States, I've had that habit and I just decided not to shake it. Let me ask you one more layer on this, which is like you have built a level of resilience coming in as a first-generation immigrant that your kids have it much easier than you did. Just like I had it a lot easier than when my parents came from Iran. Does that ever make you nervous? Do you ever worry about that? 100%. I don't know how else to ask you. It's a big worry, right? Because what shaped me is how I grew up. And I remember growing up with a lot of love, core principles about loyalty, about accountability, about hard work about discipline, sacrifice, grit, no pun intended. I grew up with that and my kids are not growing up with that. I didn't fly on a plane for business and in business class till I was, I think it was like late 20s. Late 20s and only because I got upgraded. I remember that day. I remember the first day I got upgraded too. Then you got these kids who are growing up very differently. So how do you teach it, right? Do I think about it? Every week, all the time. And In my mind, you got to instill some of the same habits. They live in a different world. You can't reverse what they're experiencing into what you experience. It doesn't work. So then how do you teach some of those core principles? And you can do it, but it takes time. It takes investment. It takes conversation. It takes trust, letting them fail, then dissecting why. I insist that they do something that drives them, whether it's sports or arts, something where you learn the value of hard work, principles of teamwork. You learn the fact that there are better people than you out there and whatever it is you're doing and that you have to work at it because you're not going to get better. That you don't get exhibited, you sit on the bench and then you ask, well, why do you think that is? And then you have a conversation. I got to throttle myself back because they're kids on what I really want to say, but you got to dose it. In every little interaction, I'm not that entertaining to like hang out with most of the time (laughs) because I dissect everything, whether you're at brunch, whether or not I observe something. So my son says, is this going to be another TED talk? (laughs) I've learned to shrink him down to like three to five minutes. Yeah, that's hilarious. I talked to a bunch of people that you know, and I'm sitting across from you for 20 minutes. I've been described as intense and you've been described as intense. Like it's palpable on you. What do you make of being described as intense. Do you like that? Do you enjoy the idea of being intense? Are you like, no, no, like I actually have a softer side. Do you think about that actively? Because I do. I'm wondering what you think. Yeah. So I've accepted it, (laughs) but I do recognize that you have to throttle that sometimes, Yeah. right? 
and you have to throttle it because you might disconnect with somebody because that's just not how they are or what they perceive. On the flip side, as soon as kind of that connection is built, I am who I am with all of that comes with it. And I've accepted that a while ago, but it was something that I consciously had to work on in social and professional engagements. Because as my wife said, you like a dark cup of coffee, except for that's not for everybody at all times of the day. And I'm like, okay, I get it. (laughs) I've had to balance it with, I've used laughing and joking as my only counterbalance to intensity because I still kind of take it as a slight when someone calls me because it makes me sound like so serious, like I take things too seriously. That's the way that I hear the word intense. And I don't like that. I don't want to take things too seriously. I don't think I do. I just think I really care about the things that I'm doing. And I feel like that I have accepted. Yeah, I've accepted who I am and now I channel it. Yeah, totally. And I throttle how I channel it. Totally. I've stopped trying to change the essence and the DNA of who you are. I think that's what makes you special, what makes you unique, and you should embrace it. But again, also accept that it's not for everybody all the time. Absolutely. Well, look, I'm thrilled to have you here. I actually wrote down the first time that we connected was in August of 2020. So this is two years in the making. So I'm thrilled to have you here. I start all of these things the same way, which is I will read your background back to you. Tell me if I screw up and then we'll go from there. Okay. All right. So you went to Cal State Pomona, got a degree in marketing and management. Then you went and got your MBA from Northwestern. Then you started your career in sales as a major account manager at Standard Register. Then you went to Teletrack, right? Yep, Is that right? Yep. Okay, you went to Teletrack for three years as a sales manager? Sales rep, sales, sales rep. manager later, yep. Perfect. Then you went to Big Bad EMC. You spent three years there, almost three years. Probably learned like what real sales was at EMC, I imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you went to Verant, spent two years there, and then BMC for three years? Yeah, Verant was witness systems first, acquired by Verant. So I was there for about five years. Got it. Okay. And then AppD. Yep. App Dynamics. You started as the VP of sales for the West in April of 2012. And then you had an amazing six year run there. Yep. Promotion after promotion after promotion. Ultimately, you were the chief revenue officer during the acquisition. Yep. And then chief customer and revenue officer while at Cisco briefly. I will say this, but you won't. I just imagine you couldn't sell your soul any longer to Cisco. And you're a builder. And ultimately, you're an agent of change. And I think if I'm guessing, you probably had a hard time doing that at a company of that size. And that is when you ended up at Zscaler as the president of go-to-market and CRO. This was in September of 2019. And as of February of this year, you're promoted to COO, right? Yep. Congrats. Thank you. Can I start picking apart some questions here? Go for it. All right, good. Actually, before I get into that, I want to ask you, when you were growing up with your family, what was conversation like at the dinner table for you all? What'd you talk about? Or what did your parents talk about? It was always about what's next, what you got to do, what do you have to earn? Like the entire experience I had as a kid was constantly being in motion, whether it's intellectually or physically. We never sat still. So it was always about what's next, whether it's personal or intellectual. Intellectual meaning school, right? And at no point was there any complaint about anything. It was always about what are we going to do? What are we going to experience? That's what it was like, no matter what. Where were you? This was in Hamburg, Germany, actually. And you were born in Croatia? I was born in what was Yugoslavia back then, but Croatia. What is Croatia now today? 
and came to Germany basically less than a year old. So, kid. How often were you going back to Yugoslavia between Germany? So, we go back every summer and go back for about six weeks. So, we still do or no? Uh, no, no, no. Back then? Back then, we'd load the car up and take a road trip. And we'd go through Munich, where my uncle lived with his family sometimes. And sometimes you'd just go straight through and, you know, you'd sleep on those rest stops for a little bit. It was old school travel. You look back on those days fondly or not fondly? I do. I used to. Do um, listen, it was fun. The vacations were amazing. You got to see some family that, you know, you didn't really grow up with. So those were the only moments. So we had a big extended family. My grandparents used to make me do a lot of work in the mornings. And then we got to play all day in the afternoon, which was great. I used to record tapes, cassette tapes for the journey all the time. I remember and we'd listen to those tapes on the road trip. What age were you when you came to the States? 16. And was that for school? It was my senior year in high school. Yeah. That seems like a weird time to come. Like, were you coming for college? No, I was coming for high school, really. It was okay. a couple of things. My parents always thought, you know, the more you see of the world, the more you make the world kind of your playground, the more you understand that there's this big picture and you got to think big and dream big. So I took a couple foreign language trips to the UK mm-hmm. for four or five days. In Germany, schools would organize those things. So it was pretty cool. And my dream was always to come to the U.S. So I dreamed about the U.S., you know, it was always in the back of my mind. And we had a lot of conversations at home. So this was a way for me to come here for a year and learn the language, learn the culture and fulfill my dream of coming to the U.S. Now, not with my mom at the time, but with my dad, we did have discussions. So what about college? Maybe right after. It was something that I wanted to do, but it was, I was young, 16. So the dream was there, but then it became reality. And then you're going, well, I don't know anybody here. Is it going to be weird? Is it going to be a little too soon? But it was always there. So I came to the U.S., fulfilled my dream of being in the U.S., and three months in, basically decided, yeah, college is it. So I had to take all the tests and study for it and stayed for school. And you just stayed here? Yeah. That's incredible. What did your parents think when you ultimately decided after getting an undergraduate, then getting an MBA. I don't know what your culture was like, but I know that when I was growing up, my family was not rooting for me to go into sales. What was it like for you? Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, even undergrad, I started off in engineering, but then things changed. And my dad was an engineer by upbringing in Eastern Bloc countries at that time. The sciences and math was it. So as a small kid, you're like... You're either going there or you got to go into the medical field. That's kind of what you do. So when you're brought up, it's pounded into your head. So in his mind, he always was going to be an engineer. That's what he did. Finished undergrad and grad. Of course, that's what I wanted to be. I love the sciences. I love math. So it was natural. That's where I started and then switched. Do you love to work? I do. I could tell. Me too. Do you ever feel guilty about that? I do. Why? Because I got three kids. So you're always asking yourself, am I spending enough time? I'm present when I'm there. Yeah. But the question always is, are you there enough? On the flip side to your question earlier, I'm a firm believer that especially kids these days, they learn by observing a lot more than by TED Talks. So what happens is I am convinced just based on interactions that I have with my kids that 
when they see you apply yourself, when they see you doing it without complaining or constantly huffing and puffing, but when they see you doing it with passion, when they see what it takes to be successful, when they see how committed you are to something and how much work you're willing to put in to get better, that's a lot better education for them on how to develop some of those things that are usually kind of internal to somebody who grows up with few things. So I am really always trying to walk that fine line between feeling guilty and realizing that they are observing habits They are building habits. They're in their minds shaping ideas that if I want to do something, I got to be passionate about it. I got to go after it. I got to really be committed and I got to invest the time. Yeah. I don't think you have a choice. You strike me as a dude that if he's in, he's all in. And if he's out, he's not in, right? And so you could play golf every day, I guess, but I suspect that you would be miserable. I just don't think you would enjoy it. So if the option on the table is to work less or work less hard, I just don't think you're hardwired that way. I just don't think it's possible for you. Tell me if I'm wrong. You're spot on. I never understood how people turned in a paper in school that was just in their mind good enough. You either complete it to the best of your abilities or why are you doing it? Before I continue, I want to talk about the pretty amazing statistics of this company that you're at Zscaler because it is a hell of a run that you are on. And, you know, you go back to the risk question earlier, like sometimes life takes you in funny directions. Like you would have stayed at AppD, you would have missed pretty crazy ride that you're having right now. Revenue is growing in the 60%, 6,700 customers, $27 billion market cap as of a couple days ago, over 3,000 employees. Absolutely incredible. This is not what this company was three years ago. It's pretty special, isn't it? It is special. It is an exciting journey and it is a special company across many different dimensions. And I'm going to let you tell me what Zscaler does in a second, but I do want to ask you a few more questions. Is that okay? It's more of a cultural question. So when you were at EMC, and I know a bunch of people from EMC, I was raised in the sales school of NetApp, EMC, this era of person. My like reminds like I'm more comfortable with the use of the world than I am of the sales leader of today. Yeah. Do you ever feel like your style have people given you feedback that it's not compatible with the new generation of employees, not even yeah. just sales people, just employees. Like, do you get that? So that's a deep philosophical question. Here's what I'll tell you. It's a different world from back in those days, especially in those days where, you know, you were walked out of the company in a bad QBR, right? Like you're fired. And that's it. You're fired. You're out. Are you being serious? Well, 100%. You have a bad QBR, a quarterly business review, where you're going over your business. You're, if you're you out. If you what? don't know your data, you're out. You're out. Or if you didn't do what they thought you should have done to maximum, maximum explore all opportunities to drive that deal, you're out. The average job tenure back in those days at EMC in the office I was in was less than two quarters. No way. Yeah. You had the established people who had been there for a while. Everybody else coming in was rotating in and out because it was all about the deal, all about getting it at any cost. There's a lot of great education on what to do, what not to do during that period. But it was really about qualification, sense of urgency, getting to the economic buyer immediately, having a business case that mattered, and really navigating the internal politics 
really quick. You transform that into a sales org 22 years later, and it's a different world. It's a different world. The way you engage with people, what you have to offer, how you can drive and really get the most out of them and allow them to become the best version of themselves. The styles, it's nowhere in the vicinity of what it was in the- It's not even close, right? No, it's a different world. It's legitimately a different, you could not do that and actually do anything productive. Is there anything that you miss about the accountability of that world? I have to tell you the thing that I didn't like about that world is you were a widget. And as long as you produced, you were a welcome widget. And I never took to that. I don't miss that. I think you can achieve accountability in different ways outside of brute force and fear. I think that's fair. Can you give me the 30 second to maybe one minute? What does Zscaler do for the audience listening? Zscaler provides internet and application access in a secure way at the most basic fundamental level for corporate employees. You elevate that up and what we really do is we're helping companies transform from legacy networks and security infrastructures into a modern transformative way to do your business that replaces the network with the internet, that allows you to migrate into the cloud, into SaaS apps, allows you to transform your security and application environments, and hence allows you to transform how you run your business. We grew up as a security company. We still are a security company at the base layer. So we, in essence, provide you a way to run your business in a very, very different way than you're running it today. Why does that matter? When you're making acquisitions, when you're opening up, shutting down offices, when you have remote employees, when you have dreams of transforming business lines into something else, the only way to do that today is by accessing cloud and agile infrastructures. How are you going to do it if everything you have is located and sitting based on rules in a data center format, in a data center structure? So at the most basic level, that is who we are and what we do. And I was warned not to use acronyms, not to get too technical, not to get too detailed. So I think that's a perfect, <laughs> perfect pitch. I have a question before I get more into this yeah. about how you got into app dynamics. Yeah. I heard it was a little bit non-traditional. Is that true? Define non-traditional. So I read a quote from the CEO who said that you interviewed with him. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't a job that you were interviewing for or someone already had the job? That's right. <laughs> What's the story? I got introduced to him through somebody else and they had already extended an offer. While they extended the offer, he had an interview scheduled with me already and he kept it. So then we sit down and I think it was a three, four hour session and we dissected how we can grow that business, how we can grow that company. And we really, really connected. He then said, I'd love to have you here. I know you're interviewing for the Americas job. What if we split the Americas in two? You were interviewing to run the Americas. Correct. But they already hired somebody to run the Americas. So they came back and said, hey, what about you run half? He runs the other half. Would you be good with that? And I said, yeah. You said yes? Yeah. I'm surprised. Why? Well, maybe because I could never do that. I'm not sure my pride would let me do that. A long time ago, I learned you can never allow your pride to dictate big decisions, right? And it's hard to do, especially at that age. How old were you? I was in my 30s. Mid-30s? Yeah. Okay. It was a situation where I looked at the market 
I looked at the company. I did a lot of research. And I looked at what was about to be transformed. And I looked at the players in that space. And this was a uniquely positioned entity. At the end of the day, you have to make a bet on yourself. And I asked myself, if this is a way in, can I get the next gig? And I said, I think I can. And you make a bet on yourself. Now, to your other question, was I sitting there going, how dare they? Don't they know what I just did? Mm -hmm. You do it, but you got to suppress that and make it go away. Let it flush through your mind because you can't pretend like you're not going to have that thought. And you let it go away. And then you ask yourself, what is your vision for yourself? What is it that you want to do? What is it you want to accomplish? And is this the vehicle to do it? And if it is, and there's a little bit of competition, why not? And how long did it take you to take the America's job to win it? I don't remember exactly, but it's about a year and a half or so. Did you work yourself to the absolute bone to get it done? We did. We all did. And he was a good guy and we really got it on. Well, it was about a year and a half or so-ish, maybe two years. I don't remember, but it was in that window. We were competing for the gig. We knew it. If you're making a bet on yourself, what are you going to leave on the table? Nothing. So you go. And I went and... I got to tell you, it was morning, evening, weekends. It didn't matter because I knew what needed to be done. On the flip side, it was also an early startup where if that's not what you're doing, that thing's not going to go anywhere. How much revenue were they doing-ish? Do you remember? When I started, we did about $7 million in ARR. Wow. Yeah. When I exited, we were close to a billion. Can I tell you something that I've been thinking about as I've yeah. been researching you? You are so process-oriented, so much so. To a degree that I rarely see, and it's obviously driving this business forward at Zscaler today, it surprises me that you would go that early, given how much process you love. Generally, sub-20 million ARR, yeah. it's a little bit more- There's no process. There's cowgirls and cowboys, you know? Like, this is not a process-oriented place. Did that bother you a little bit, especially coming from EMC? Like, I don't know. I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah. Let me kind of share my thinking with you. Every step in your journey has to be educational, has to give you growth. Every job I've taken, I've taken very, very intentionally with the number one question of what can I learn and what can I grow into individually and professionally in this opportunity? I always felt I was going to make money if I put myself in the right company, in the right market. So I did process I did the mid-size to large mid-size build. I did big company turnaround. I'd never done a really pure startup with this much potential. Teletrack was the closest thing to it, but I didn't really, I wasn't really fully aware of what I was doing at that time. So to me, this was a tremendous opportunity to really build something from the ground up, shape it, put your stamp on it, knowing that the first couple of years, it was going to be back alley street brawling, scrappiness, because you got to get the deals that early on. And I loved and still love doing deals, engaging with customers and finding a way to create an opportunity to maximize what's in front of you. In your new capacity as COO, you feel a little out of your skis, out of your element? Well, listen, it's a first time role. This is the biggest business I've ever- Sales and marketing? Run. I own the budgets for everything. Our CMO runs the strategy. Got it. But we are one unit. So the difference is, it was a risk worth taking. It was a job worth taking because it stretched me and it made me uncomfortable, still does. 
And it makes me continuously want to evolve because I know I have to. There is no choice. And if I don't do it, then somebody else will be doing that job soon enough. Let me ask you an honest question. Yeah. When you keep getting these promotions and I imagine your boss has never thought that you are not desperate to take on more responsibility. And I mean desperate in a good way. Like you are ready to rock. You want more. Prove yourself, earn more responsibility, and you're eager to take on more. You like that feeling. That's what makes you great. If everybody knows that about you, okay, and I'm sure you have people on your team that you're thinking about right now that are the exact same way. Because in the business world, I have found that you generally do not get the things that you want unless you push for it. Yep. But it's like, well, how do you balance that? No, everybody knows. Yep. But you don't want to come off as entitled. You don't want to ask for something that you feel like everyone already knows you want. But most of the time, you got to ask for it. So yep. I'm just curious, like, how do you think about that in your position as you've taken these steps up? And is that any different from the way that you would coach someone on your team to think about it? Yeah. Does the question make sense? It does. So here's what I'll tell you back to what's the number one question, because people sometimes confuse getting another title with actually getting more responsibility. So the question always is, is there more to learn, more to do? Is there something else to really engage yourself in that you had not done before? Is there something for you to bridge across the orgs that you had not participated in before? And if that's your mindset, here's what you're going to do. You're going to continuously drive forward, connect or engage, find points of problem solving, of ideation, of building something new. And when you do that, you increase your scope. When you increase your scope, then you increase scope around you as well because everybody rises with a new idea or a new business unit or a new product line. Didn't you then already technically already create your new job? Didn't you create what's next? So you prove your value, you earn your value, you create the next job. And then it's not a, when do I get the next job? You've already built it. And then it's a natural conversation of, why don't we formalize it? So we eliminate conflict, we eliminate any political infighting, because everybody understands that what just happened is everybody's scope increased and you just created a broader set of business that you're running. Too many times today, everybody hops to get the next thing title-wise without asking, what is this really going to give me in scope for learning for growth? That's why I never chase titles. That's to your earlier question, am I the Americas? Or am I splitting the Americas? Was I going to learn something? Yes. Was I going to be able to build something? Yes. Was I confident if I build it bigger, better, faster, I get the next gig? Yes. Was it then a natural conversation to say, well, I'm already technically doing it. Why don't we go ahead and formalize it to eliminate conflict and friction? When you wake up today, there's probably a million priorities. Yep. More than you probably knew you signing up for. Yep. And your inbox is telling you that every single morning. Yep. Do you have anything any buckets when the world is trying to take your attention that you always go back to as the most important things that you should be doing every single day? Every day in the morning, I wake up early and I take 20 minutes to myself. It's my, I guess you could call a meditation period. Mm -hmm. What I do during that time is I ask myself, where do I think I'm going to spend my time today? 
because I, I know what was waiting for me yesterday. So I know what's there's more coming today and tomorrow, but there's always a trail of too much work and never enough time. So you bucket into three different categories where you're going to spend your time because there's going to be new things that pop into one of the buckets. So I philosophically do it. I don't do it by task, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I do it after I start the day, just really getting myself into a calm, peaceful frame of mind and asking myself, where am I going to go today? What am I going to- Which are the three buckets? Yes. What are they? The first bucket, it's really things that are programmatic at the company level. So things that need to move forward because when you trickle them down, they impact a many. So what are projects that need to be accelerated and move forward? Because everybody's busy. Everybody has their things going. And my job is to compress timelines. What's an example of a programmatic project? If you're sitting there and saying, we got to do compensation baselining. If you're sitting there saying, you know, the long range plan that we built needs some adjustments. If you're sitting there and asking yourself, what technical relationships do we need to define and go deeper in? in order to get a partner completely unlocked. Those are programmatic. Is there something that's making people disconnect from the company? Who do you talk to about that? CEO, CPO. So those are the buckets. The second bucket is the operational bucket on the go-to-market side, which is kind of the core elements around all of the recruit, the retain, and the revenue aspects of the job. And that is the essence of how we run our business. So that sits here. The problem with the top layer is if you don't address it, it will impact you down the line. And it's the thing you least want to do. Recruiting's more fun. It is. It's the thing that has the least immediate payback and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So you don't get the gratification back, the stimulation, right? But it's the necessary task to run a business. It's the blocking and tackling. Correct. And then the third layer is really tactical things. And I hate to put deals into that, but it is. I still love to engage with customers. and love to go out there. I don't doubt that for a Um, second. And, you know, I do enjoy that thoroughly. But deals, I can chase a deal and spend a lot of time or five or 10. The problem is if I don't build the platforms for hundreds of people to be able to chase these deals... At some point, I lose because you can't scale that. So if you don't address that operational layer, if you don't address all of the things that come with it across leadership, across ecosystem functions, everything else, you impact all deals. And then, of course, down there, the tactical layer, you have deals, you have specific issues, you have people who have a problem that they want to resolve, a project they're working on. That's kind of the baseline, the everyday things. My old boss taught me a priority matrix that I still use to this day, every day. It's impact and priority. And basically, you put all the things in a day in these different buckets of the matrix. And the one you don't want to be in is low impact, low priority, where you want most of the things to be is high impact, high priority. It's only a few things that you want in there. You want most of your time to be spent there. High impact, low priority is the thing that you need to do, which is your top layer that you do not see immediate gratification from. The inverse of that is your middle layer, which is the three R's. And then the bottom part of that is all the shit that you really do not want to do, but you have to do. It's a priority. You just have to deal with it. Someone got in a fight. Someone's about to quit. Those are the things that you have to deal with right there. Absolutely. Especially around the people side. I try to make myself as available as possible. But you're sitting there sometimes and asking yourself, how did you get here? This is a bad decision for you. But my job is to explain the different permutations of consequences so that people come to the right conclusions in people-related issues, right? Or deals. Every time 
Everybody wants to chase the money. But the construct of how to create a legitimate win-win to where the money will come, that construct, that is a skill and an art. And it's a patience level that this newer generation, to your point, is losing a little bit. In an ideal world, if you had to frame your percentage of time, not how it's actually lived, yeah, but yeah. if you could draw up an allocation across those three buckets in a given day or a week, how would you, like, what percentage would you give each? In an ideal world? In an ideal world. <laughs> <laughs> it would probably be 20% top layer, 50% middle layer, and then 30%. In the bottom. Yeah, because that middle layer is critical when you get big. That middle layer in an app dynamics when I started didn't exist. Because it was about sales process, execution, go chase the... So everything was about that third layer. But that's how I would construct it because it would allow me to really spend the majority of the time in the middle. And the middle layer is the three R's, recruit, retain, and... It's kind of the entire operational engines of everything that we do. Recruit, retain, and revenue, right? Yes, and that's across whether it's direct sales, channels, the ecosystem, the architects, the technical resources, everything else. So let me ask you this. 20, 50, 30 is your ideal breakdown. What is your lived reality? How does it end up actually looking? (laughs) (laughs) Does most of it go to the bottom? No, most of it goes to the top, actually. It's more like, depending on the quarter, anywhere between 40 to 60 on the top layer, and then somewhere between 30 to 40 in that middle layer, because you got to at least spend a third of your time in that middle layer, no matter what. You know, anywhere to 10 to 20, but more on the 10 side on the bottom layer. I don't have the time to chase deals because if I do that, everybody loses. In the most recent analyst report, or one of the more recent ones, one of the notes, it says, it's also clear CRO Dolly Reich overhauls company of the sales organizations having a positive impact with the coincidental hiring of a record number of salespeople. This is, I guess, before your COO tenure. The org was not what it is today, but during that time, I think we had a really big push probably hired about 100 reps in a four-month period, five-month period. In hiring all those reps, what's the number one mistake, looking back, that you made? I think the number one mistake I made, anybody also usually makes, is when you have that many people to hire, sometimes you will compromise a little bit on the profile. And the candidate loses, And the company loses in that instance, because that's in a trip waiting to happen. That would be probably it. Because when you were so far behind and, you know, we did a pretty massive reconstruct of the entire go-to-market engine when I started, which means a decent amount of people exited and decent amount of people came in out of the gate. It's really easy to say, good experience, seems pretty good, interviewed well and has some core idea around sales process, qualification principles, let's go. It's not deep enough. So over time, we've adjusted it. We've changed how we interview. But that is going to be the number one thing. And that's going to be the number one thing for pretty much any org. What's your favorite characteristic or quality? And I know you have a list of them. Yep. I think it's I-C-E-E is the acronym that you use. I-C-C-E. I-C-C-E, which is, what is it, intelligence? Coachability, character, and experience. What is the green light flashing sign for you? Character. Tell me more about that. Natural curiosity, loyalty, accountability, sense of belonging 
to a community. Integrity. I can't teach that. You were taught that by your surroundings, by the influences in your early life. That is the most important element, though, especially in a company that's rapidly growing because everything is changing. Things are uncomfortable. You got to have trust. People have to trust you. You have to have that natural curiosity and you got to be accountable to what's expected because everybody's counting on you. It's not just your number. That SE needs to feed their family based on what they earn, based on what you're doing. Multiple families depend on you if you're a leader. Multiple families' leaders depend on you if you're you know, a second-line leader. So everything comes to what happens in your head when nobody's around and how you think of the world, those around you, and everything you're responsible for. That, to me, is the number one thing that I've seen be a big variable and determining factor in success. My flashing green light is not dissimilar from yours. Curiosity is the big one. Yep. And the way that I like to think about it is curiosity about themselves is equally important to me I as agree. curiosity about the outside world. Another way of saying that is self-awareness. Yes. And I think self-awareness is the prerequisite to progress. And I think that if you're a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all, you got to get better faster than most people. And I think the reason you're in your spot is not because you're naturally talented. I just think you get better faster than most because you're always in positions where you're learning more. And I think you're self-aware enough to know that when that moment is there, you can take advantage of it. One of the things that I struggle with is testing for self-awareness. Yeah. How do you do it? It goes back to the coachability element. If you think about it, if at the core you're coachable, that means you're thirsty for knowledge. If you're thirsty for knowledge, you're self-aware that you are lacking it somewhere. If you're coachable, it also means you're naturally curious as to how things work at a level of excellence. Otherwise, why would you be coachable? Because you're pretty good already, right? If you look at that coachability aspect, you can go back in people's personal lives and see what they did and ask them why they did it and how they came to the conclusion, how they got better. You can ask people what they learned throughout their career. I pretty much remember different leaders and what I learned in different jobs because I was self-aware on who I was, wasn't, what I knew, what I didn't, and I was on a quest to get better. Coachability is the variable that will let you know and give you insights into people, self-awareness, and natural curiosity. Hmm. Do you have a hard time winning? When the stock popped 18% last yeah. week, I bet if someone came to you and said, dude, what a great day. I bet no one's dumb enough to do that. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. Is that fair? It is. When a huge deal closes, huge deal, company changing, do you have a harder time celebrating that win than you do moving on to the next thing? I am the biggest fan of celebrating people that made it happen. And the reason is it took a lot of work. It took sacrifice. It took resilience at some point. Anybody who does something unique, all those elements are required. And you got to give people the acknowledgement that it was an amazing feat and that it wasn't luck, that there's a lot more that can be done. So just saying, hey, great job. What does that tell somebody? If you dissect why it was a good job and how they can build on it, that's a learning moment. Do I personally go high five, chest bump? No. Stock pops in a day. Is it nice? Yeah, but I'm not quitting the next day. 
So you got to have a long-term view on what you're doing. Think about it in this kind of form. I live in an emotional range that, in spite of my intensity, is pretty compact. I can't get too excited. I can't get too down on something because it leaks energy. And I can't afford to leak energy because then I won't have it for the business and I won't have it at home. So I do stay here. But I do acknowledge and I make it a point to make sure you celebrate something that somebody did. And it doesn't even need to be big. I'm a big fan of celebrating the small wins, the small marginal gains. Because when you stack a lot of those, great things happen. I want to give you two examples that I think really remind me of this. The first is a guy named Tom Mendoza. Do you know who that is? He's the former president of NetApp. He talks about catching people doing something right. He used to make even in the heydays of NetApp, 100 calls a week. And the system that he designed within the go-to-market org is that if someone sees someone doing something that's right, that aligns to the values of the business, they send an email to Tom. Yep. And Tom makes about 10 to 15 calls a day to catch them doing something right. I love that. And it reminds me of the little things that you could just describe. I'm a big fan. I send out notes to people who do something special every quarter. And it's a lot of them. And I seek out from their leaders what those things are. Like an email saying, hey, you did this specific thing. I just want to acknowledge it. And tell you why it was great. Yes. And you're doing that instead of the big parties and dinners, I imagine. There's not enough time to reach the amount of people you got to reach. If you're doing these big celebrations, you go out on a dinner, that's four or five people. But it's these small touches on small things that, again, you stack them in an aggregate It lets somebody know I'm on the right path. I'm doing great things. They're being recognized. And I think that is so important. It was even more important in a remote world where everybody was their own company, you know, self-employed in their home office. And I also think it connects people to you from a community standpoint, as opposed to, again, just a widget. That EMC learning will stay with me forever. One of the things that I love that Chris Degnan, the CRO of Snowflake does, employee seven, CRO. Yeah. He's amazing. Have you met him? I did. He's a great guy. You guys would totally. I'll and you. It's, what he's done is spectacular. S- spectacular. Yep. Across three CEOs. Yep. He, since the beginning, used to send out a win wire. This is like when he was basically like super rep of the early days. Yep. And it hasn't changed since where the win wire traditionally has the dollar amount first. Yep. And then a win wire for the audience is a, an email sent by the sales rep usually to talk about the win and the dollar amount and all the things that came yep. with it. They do not put the dollar amount. The only thing that they acknowledge is the team that supported it. So it ends up being like a list of 15 people from the person that set the meeting to the sales engineer that came in to help close the deal to the person that built that product, the killer feature that got it done and across the finish line. I think that's so much more special. And I think it's a way to celebrate the right types of wins. Yep. Would you agree with that? I would because I've been doing that same thing for the same reasons Chris is doing it. The dollar amount fizzles quick, but people reading about somebody who did something special inspires them to do something special and wanting to be recognized on that wire. So you spend all your time really on why did the customer buy, meaning what value do we drive? Because you got to instill belief in the company and what you're representing and then who all was involved and what they did to help drive that. And it's a long list usually. One other story that Tom Mendoza shared with me was when NetApp was ripping. They went from like 100K to 100 million in revenue in two years. Like it went on fire. I mean, you know the space. Yeah, yeah. He walked into Sequoia's office 
and he was ready for the champagne shower, the parade, right? They thought, you know, could just go higher. And the board member at the time just drilled into him on one specific slide on something very innocuous about like net retention or something. Yeah, yeah. And the lesson that he learned at that point in his life was about what he calls injecting tension into the business. And when things are going well, he learned that the job of a leader or a board member is to inject tension. I have a feeling that you are pretty darn good at that. And I feel like you're probably doing that today at Zscaler when you're absolutely ripping. How do you think about that? Like, yeah. Do you have a framework for it? Or like, I imagine you do it. Here's what I can tell you. And I've been doing this for, I can't remember how long. Every six months, I like to tinker and do some changes in the business. And every 12 months, uh, a little bit more material, which is shifting our territories, reporting structures, specific go-to-market focus areas. And the tension also needs to manifest itself in how some people, what their charter is and how they're rewarded. If you make people uncomfortable, if you make people ask themselves, what else could I be doing or should I be doing different? If you don't allow people to fall into a routine, if you don't allow people to get complacent, you are helping them continuously evolve. You're helping them continuously build new skills. You're helping them understand how to collaborate with people that are their teammates that maybe have a slightly different charter, but you have the same goal. So find a way to optimize that. By injecting a little bit of tension, you also find soft spots in the business. You also find things that you were not aware of because maybe you're too far removed or maybe you just hadn't had the attention put into that specific point. So I'm a big fan of injecting tension and injecting change. If you're not naturally evolving at all times, you get in sandpapered away slowly and you don't notice. And then a couple of years later, you wake up and you go, why am I not further ahead? And people get busy in their lives. People are sometimes not at self-aware. So as a leader, you have the responsibility to put a system in place that does that for them and then allows them to really flourish in that. Do you also call it inject tension? That's a thing. Yes. Is there an example of a time that you can think of, I don't know, recently or whenever, where you injected tension? I'll give you a recent example. So at Zscaler, we redid our entire channel model. And we had to redo it in order for it to scale and for it to have broader reach and for us to have a little bit more control over the business because we're a publicly traded company. You got to be able to predict it, right? We then had a BD team or have a BD team that was responsible for tech alliances. And these are the Microsofts of the world, the CrowdStrikes of the world, the AWSs of the world. And in these tech alliances, you have to, again, spin up a motion to drive incremental yield, incremental revenue, which might conflict with the channel model that you just built. People's comp plans will drive behavior. And what you do is you compensate both teams based on who sources or finds first. That's worth a lot to any high growth business. But there's always an argument, well, who really did truly find it first? Well, I did this or I did that, and it's natural. If you don't inject a little bit of attention there, then you start having people doing trade-offs and the business loses while the individual might win. And long-term, the individual loses because if the business is not making money, you can't fund rich complaints. So I need to protect the integrity of the model. And the way you do it is by sometimes making it uncomfortable. Now, 
you run that for a little bit until you really define the swim lanes so you can get the one plus one equals three yield versus one plus one is 1.5. And then you got to structure it in a way where you remove some of that tension because the tension showed you the path. Now you define the path and you remove the tension so you can accelerate the collab. Like a healthy competitiveness. Yes. I have heard, and this doesn't surprise me in the slightest, that you can cut through the noise incredibly quickly. Yep. Do you have signals for someone that is kind of just wax poeting along, just meandering through? Are there things that you look for? Because I have a feeling you're always looking. Are there any signals for you? Data. I look at data. And my mind works in a mathematical way, so I correlate information. Then I go two, three, four layers deep. And when you do that, and if somebody's philosophizing, and it's not a philosophy session, but rather a review session, I'm pretty clear on expectations. And I'll set them, hey, let's talk in bullet points. I want just facts. When I want an interpretation, I'll ask you for the interpretation. But just give me the data. It's very clear. And then you brainstorm from there. If you can't articulate what you're trying to get across in short, quick bullets, then I question whether or not you really understand it. Because if you have to use a lot of words, it's usually because you're thinking it through in your own head, as opposed to saying it's A, B, C, D, E, I don't know, E, F, G, H, and I think there's a risk at D and Z. And when you create kind of a culture and an operating cadence where it's about data, interpretation, correlation of data, and then mutually discussing next steps in action, you're shaping how people think, how they engage, and it makes meetings much shorter. I bet. <laughs> and much more impactful. <laughs> Can you talk about how you think of yield as a framework in a go-to-market organization? Yeah. When I start with yield, my definition is of maximum yield for an individual's efforts. It does not start with maximum yield for the company. Can you make a distinction between the two? Absolutely. I can get maximum yield for a company by driving a certain process and never allow the individual to self-realize. And I can, at the end of the quarter, say, check, done, we're in a good place. In the meantime, I got a big body of people who did not get maximum yield, but worked hard, super hard. But we failed them in having them understand what the right actions are, what the right ways are to execute on those actions, what the right plans should look like, what a complete plan and a continuous evolution looks like. So you got to teach these things to individuals at each level and then to first-line leaders on how to get maximum yield for everything they do. They're away from their family. They're dealing with anxiety. They're dealing with stress. They're dealing with responsibility, self-doubt, all of these things. So you got to create a platform. you got to create an enablement model and system that gets them to understand if I follow this path, do all these things, I'll get maximum yield. Now, if they commit to it, buy in and continue the work on this journey, the company wins every time because you're going to have a body of people, a big body of people, a bigger body of people that self-realize, get maximum yield for efforts. Maximum yield also means it's intellectual, professional, and financial. If they're getting paid, the company's crushing their numbers. And how do most organizations think about it differently than this? What's the typical way? So when you say yield for the company rather yep. than the individual, what does that really mean? Like, how does that work? 
it's where you spend your investment and where you spend your focus. Ours is really heavy on enablement, on development, on creating a platform where people can grow into the best version of themselves. That's where you spend an abnormal amount of money and resources. Leadership enablement, an abnormal amount of money and resources. That's what I'm talking about. A lot of companies will neglect some of the investments there and they're chasing numbers. They're running models, successful sometimes, and they'll chase numbers. The difference there is people are not connected to that business and people are not committed to that business. And where it manifests itself is when things go bad, they exit out. So if I'm running a standard sales organization, it's about pipeline, it's about activity, it's about hitting the numbers, it's about coverage, all relevant things. But if that's what it is and everything else is an afterthought, then again, you're just a much more sophisticated widget in that engine as opposed to an individual that's getting a platform to really grow into the best version of themselves and through that yield back for the company. Do you think the only way you can demand such a high level of accountability and excellence is because you demand that of yourself? If you're not going to do it yourself and if you're not going to commit to those principles, it's really hard to ask others to do it. You look at the founder, chairman, CEO, Zscaler, uh, Jay Chowdhury, talk about somebody who doesn't need to work ever. And his mind is just really all about putting in the effort, being there for people at all times to help with anything he can. And he embodies that, personifies it, and it trickles down into the leaders. Then it trickles down into the groups. And when that happens, you have a really great collective versus mercenaries working for you as long as the paycheck is good. But could Jay ever push you harder than you could push you? No. But same question, could I push him harder than he pushes himself? No, no. chance, right? No. Does that get exhausting? Like, it, doesn't it, it make you it, tired? It, <laughs> sometimes it does because it's never ending, right? And you just don't stop wherever you go. And you learned it at the dinner table. Yes. When you were a kid, what's next? What's next? When you're always thinking about what's next, it drives you towards excellence. It also drives you a little bit nuts. <laughs> it is, if you're not conscious about that trait yeah. for yourself, yeah. it can be a little destructive because you can get in a situation where maybe you're not happy with what is because you're worried about what's next. So you got to consciously, again, take the moment, celebrate your own personal moments, right? Celebrate your own little experiences, but it's a conscious effort. I'm curious for you, I imagine you're being more conscious of this as you grow older, probably, and you have other values and things in your life, just kids and stuff, and the wife. How do you celebrate the moments now? What do you do? I make it a point to celebrate the moment. So we just had an SKO and I talked to everybody about controlling your mind, your thoughts, being disciplined and understanding being positive is not a state of mind. It's a work ethic. So you got to put in the time to be positive. How are you going to be positive? Well, it's in how you view stressful situations. Is it stressful or an opportunity for growth? Again, control your thoughts, control your mind. Did you do something nice for somebody today? Nice little email. Did you give something back today? Yes or no? Did you make it a point to just let somebody know who just sent you a body of work that they completed that this is really thorough. This is a great job. Thank you very much. It's the simplest thing you can think of. So to me, you have to make yourself get into a mode 
of staying calm, peaceful, controlling your thoughts, and doing things for others that then give you energy and put you in a positive frame of mind. And that has to be intentional. And when you have wins, is that what you try and do? What are you doing when you have your wins? Like when you want to celebrate, what does that look like? At work or let's say at home, if your kid gets something you've been talking about for months and months, if your kid comes back to you with a problem to solve and you point them in the right direction without giving the answer, and they come back to you with, look what I did and they're super proud. You know, those are little moments and I celebrate them big. Somebody gets into an account that they've been trying to get into for three months. That's a pipeline generation effort that's part of the job, right? But that's a great moment to celebrate. Somebody's creativity or resilience, persistence, sophistication, whatever it is. So I look for those things and they're small pleasures, but they add up. Are your weekends as regimented as your weekdays? (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) I'll tell you why though. You got to remember the bigger your responsibility, the more you have to understand that your time really doesn't belong to you if you want to be fair to those that depend on you. So this work-life balance concept that everybody talks about, I don't think it exists without a really, really big trade-off. But work-life integration can exist and can be very joyful. But you got to be a little bit structured about it and you got to be regimented about it because you got to inject the moments of fun, of exercise, socializing, family time, all those things. So yes, it's regimented and I try to hide it as much as I can from my family, but it's really hard. Only you would say inject fun. So like uh, this Saturday, do you know what your Saturday is going to be? Soup to nuts? I do. All the way? I, uh, not all the way, but I know probably 70% of it. You yes. know 70% of your Saturday? Yes. It's like pretty much planned. It's planned. It's between social, between sports with the kids, games of the kids, time with wife to do a couple of things. So I actually take notes during the week on what I'm going to do on the weekend. Your wife, she knows. Yes. She's obviously accustomed to this at this yes. point. And she knows that this is your way of creating integration. Yes. Otherwise, if you don't, then you're just going to work because that's your default state and that's what you enjoy doing. Right. And you know, and she knows that you have other priorities in your life that are super important. And there's only one way for you to achieve that. You got to have that partnership or you can't be successful. It does not mean that I don't get ribbed all the time by the kids and everybody around the fact that not everything has to be an operating plan, dad. (laughs) And we laugh about it, but, and they're right. So I don't argue it, but it is what it is. Yeah. So it's pretty scheduled. Yeah. Okay. One more question on, for this. Do you go on vacation? I do it's go hard for on you. vacation. <laughs> and I try to take moments of pure disconnect, but I can't really disappear for a week or two. Dude, me neither. I can't do it. The Zoom Info CEO, Henry Schuck, he calls it releasing the pressure valve. Yeah. And so I have actually completely adopted this mantra where I used to feel guilty because you're not supposed to work on vacation. I want to. I wake up and I'm excited about where I love my job. It's something that I love. It's a true love of what I yeah. like, what I live for. And so me stepping away to go away from my job, I don't want to always be away from my job. Now, obviously, that's unfair to the people that I'm on a vacation with yeah. because the whole point of the vacation is generally be present with the people that you're with. So he says, releasing the pressure valve, an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon, he goes through his inbox. And then the rest of the time, he's much more present because he's not thinking about all the things that are coming up. It's a great way to put it. And if you don't practice that, 
you can't have a vacation and you cannot actually take that anxiety layer low. So the question then is, how do you do it without interrupting people's days? Back to the structured days, weekends of fun. If you don't do it, you know it's waiting for you. So I like the releasing the pressure moments, but it has to be structured around everybody else and what they're doing. So not you asking them to structure around your pressure release moments. Is it hard for you to unwind? Let me give you a personal example. I am the most anxious by far every single week from three to five o'clock on Friday, maybe four to six, whenever my day is ending and I'm supposed to be starting my personal life. I am so deeply anxious and I can't shake it because I'm so wound up. I'm so tight from the week and I just gave it everything I had. It's like this transition moment where I'm not all in on one thing or the other. I'm just trying to go from one to the other and it rips me apart. Is it hard for you to unwind? It isn't because I make a conscious decision that this is the unwind moment. And then boom. And then I just flip my focus, right? So do you still carry it a little bit with you? Yeah, you do sometimes. But again, it's about intentionality, controlling your thoughts, controlling your mind. If you can do that and say, this is three hours, four hours of just pure relaxation, then you do it. And at the end of the week, the week's over, you're at the airport for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Again, I take that moment to just breathe, relax, and then you get on a flight and you do email but it's those little moments that allow you that transition. I'm a big fan of them. I love it. Well, dude, thank you. I always wrap these things up the same way. The first, are you hiring? Is Zscaler hiring? What are you hiring for? Yes, we're hiring. And what Zscaler is hiring for is really individuals who are intent on growing their careers, but not by chasing jobs, but by chasing growth and learning. We are hiring across all roles and the amount of money that we invest in development is like nothing I've seen before in companies five, six X plus our size. We are hiring, we are looking to add more talent and we're looking for people to really grow with us over time because we're building something sustainable and the journey is just begun. And we have an executive team that's aligned, which is pretty unique. We have a founder whose singular mission it is to really build the next powerhouse software company. And we have a great community of diverse people who welcome others who fit the profile well. It isn't just sales, though. We're hiring across the entire company. And I welcome anybody who's interested in really taking a deep look as to who they are, what they want out of life, how they want to maybe create a plan, a vision for where they want to go. This is where we do that and we focus on it and we focus on helping people to do it. So yes, that is absolutely the case. We are hiring and we are hiring at pace. Last question. When you hear the word grit, what does it mean to you? Just that belief, the commitment that I used to say, even when it looks like it can't be done, you find a way or you make one. And that's grit to me, where you just power through it, not in a negative, destructive way, but you just get uncomfortable. You walk through your fears. 
you deal with the uncertainty in your head with the self-doubts of can I, should I? And you commit yourself to the vision, the mission, the plan, the purpose, your purpose. And you just go through it. You deal with the stress, you deal with the setbacks, you deal with everything else that happens. And you have a positive mindset because you just learned something. You just grew. You just progressed. That's how I define grit. It's, you know, not this rah-rah and just go pile drive it through. That doesn't really, in my mind, work sustainably. Tali, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.